Welcome to Better Brace podcast, where we start a conversation with the community about aspects of sexual harassment in the workplace, ranging from how to define workplace harassment to legal actions and power dynamics. We are a group of international students from Minerva schools at KGI. Through this podcast, we want to raise awareness about workplace harassment, empower individuals with the resources to recover from workplace harassment, and provide a space for people to seek help from one another. We are so glad you're part of this journey with us. We know this is a tough topic, but it's important to start this conversation. And remember, no one should be alone in this. Just a heads up, due to coronavirus, we have to record some of our episodes virtually, so our audio quality may not always be ideal. Thanks for hanging tight with us and stay safe. This podcast contains sensitive information about workplace harassment. Please take care while you're listening. Take a break and reach out for support if you need to. guys, it's Ellie again. I'll be your co-host for this episode. Welcome back to the Better Brave Community Podcast. We're super excited to have you back. Hi, I'm Gabby and I'll be your other co-host. Today's episode is about recovering from workplace harassment. And we invited Ilana, who started her career as a film writer in Los Angeles. And now she works as a therapist in the Wright Institute Los Angeles with a group of women that experience sexual harassment in the workplace. So welcome, Ilana. And can you share a little bit about yourself and what drives you? Well, as you say, I started out working in the film business, which is a very male-dominated business, even among screenwriters, which is one of the more women-friendly aspects of it. We're a very we're a small minority and experienced a fair amount of sexual harassment over the course of the 20 years that I worked in the business and then decided to become a psychotherapist and was interested in the issues of power and powerlessness at work and in the context of the family. And so looking at the issues of sexual predators in the workplace was something that I was seeing a lot with my clients. And after I graduated, I trained at the Wright Institute Los Angeles initially as a postgraduate fellow. And then I started working for them as their director of group therapies and put together a number of different groups, women's groups. First, women who've been subjected to sexual trauma or violence was a survivor's group. And then we started working with women in film to set up Safe Space, which was specifically for women in the film business in the aftermath of Me Too, who started coming forward and saying, oh my gosh, this happened to me, this happened to me, and, and looking for ways to help support them. So that was the genesis of Safe Space, which was a group I set up at the right. Thank you for sharing. And I guess you touched a little bit on that already, but do you mind talking a little bit more of what inspired you to join the Wright Institute? Well, the Wright Institute has been offering low-fee psychotherapy in Los Angeles for over 45 years. So for me as a social worker, it allowed for both really top-notch training and the opportunity to work with populations that otherwise wouldn't have access to mental health care. So even after I left it as a, as a student, I wanted to participate because I think, think it's really important that everyone have access to that kind of, of help and support. Absolutely. So you mentioned kind of before being the director of group therapy. So how did group therapy kind of become your niche when you're trying to find like figure out a way for everyone to have for everyone to have that support? And then how did that bring you into group therapy specifically? That's a really good question and complicated one. 
I think on one level, if you're trying to provide as much community support as you can, group therapy is a great model because, you know, one or two therapists can lead a group of 10 people. But even more than that, I think it's a really good clinical model, particularly for disempowered populations, because a lot of the women that I work with, whether they come from backgrounds of domestic violence or sexual abuse from childhood or have been raped or seeing trauma in the workplace, it seems almost universal that these experiences are faced with a level of shame and self-blame just seems to be the go-to almost without exception. So by bringing women together into a group and allowing them to hear other people's stories, they immediately find that they're not judging others as harshly as they're judging themselves. And it opens the door to talk about shame and self-blame as an issue in a society where someone who's raped gets questioned about their clothing choices or a woman who is subject to sexual predators in the workplace is asked what did you wear? How do you talk? You know, I mean, the film business in particular, there's a kind of easy familiarity in it that can easily make the lines feel blurry, particularly for young women who haven't got as much experience with this. So a group context seemed like a really good place. And what we found with Safe Space as a pilot program was that women who came in feeling horribly guilty and isolated within the first meeting or two started to feel a sense of kinship, a sense of support, not only from the group leaders, but more importantly, from the other participants. It's an empowering model. Yeah, so you seem to have touched a lot on something that seems really important. It's just like the power dynamics of what each, what each woman experiences almost individually because of who they are, where they're coming from, or even what industry they're in. Like you were saying with being in the film industry, where it's almost common, right? And so that kind of changes the dynamics. So I guess, do you notice that there's a lot of, there's a lot of difficulty with different people of different, I don't know, culture, sexual orientations, gender identities, reaching out for help? And so does that, does group therapy in this situation or just therapy in general help with kind of mitigating the differences between uh, those power dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I think that oftentimes the lines between people, sexual orientation, different kinds of identification, you can feel like, how would this person understand me? And I think when women come together, I mean, in, in the safe space piece, the thing that was most, that I anticipated the real problems with were women who worked above or below the line. In other words, a woman who was a director or a cinematographer was in the same group with a woman who was an animal wrangler or a makeup artist or a production assistant. These are very, very different fields in terms of pay, in terms of credit, in terms of the respect that they generate from different people. Seeing that all of us were in the same, were subject to the same kinds of problems was a great sort of unifier and equalizer. Touching a little bit more on this power dynamics, it seems like as women, even in different positions, this group therapy is also empowering. But that's not the reality in the workplace. So how do you see that? How do you see those differences? I think that women, particularly women in film, it's not always such a, an inviting kind of environment. The film business is very much run on the notion of mentorship. You really need to, it, you can go to film school and you can get your master's or you can make your, you know, your student film, but it's, it's a craft that really is taught from one person to the next. That's why a lot of times in credits, you'll see people 
the key grip and all of the people underneath him have the same last name because people bring others in and they mentor them and they train them. Or if you're an actor, for example, you need some agent to believe in you. You need someone to open the door. And young women who come from all over the world to Los Angeles, the way I did when I was young, to make art, to change the culture, whatever your whatever the reason is for your vision, need those those kinds of sponsors. I mean, if you've read any of this, any of the material from the hundreds of women who came forth regarding Harvey Weinstein, some of them were secretaries, and some of them were uh, actors, and some of them were production designers. They had many different jobs, but all of them were looking for a break. All of them were looking for someone to see their work and take it seriously. When a man of you know power and standing brings another man into the fold there can be a lot of reasons why that can be kind of a father-son relationship it can be it, it can be a lot of things and it can also be potentially predatory but for young women who come into the business the incidence of men promising them things with an unspoken expectation of some kind of quid pro quo has become a cliche because it's so common. And now finally with Time Magazine named the truth tellers of Me Too as um, people of the year a few years ago, suddenly now we have a language and a broader understanding. But previous to that, I think many women and even men who are subject to sexual predators felt, oh my gosh, what did I do? How did I mislead? What should I have done? When you see with cases like people like Weinstein, that serial sexual predators are you know, these, this is a guy who's been on the prowl for decades. So he's both your best, you know, he's your, your biggest dream and he's your worst nightmare. And truly, I mean, I have been working in the, in the industry since the late 70s and everyone heard about Harvey Weinstein, but it seemed like an unstoppable force. And he certainly wasn't the only one. So do you think there's something specific about, like, I know we hear a lot about the film industry and how this happens all over in the film industry, even though it's um, it's broader as well. Like there are all sorts of other industries that have this as well. But do you think there's something specific about the film industry that makes it so prone to kind of these blurry lines or this tendency? Is it just is it just that idea of needing an advocate? So you feel like you're more almost at the power of that advocate who's decided to take you on? My work focuses in part on the film industry, but I don't think by any means it's, it's, it's unique. I mean, I've heard women in high-powered law firms talk about, you know, I went to Yale and I got great grades and I was on the partnership track and then I found out that what I had to deliver. Women who are who want to be surgeons. They also need mentors. You can study surgery, but basically you need someone to say, I'm going to bring you in. In fields where you need an entree, and I think that's many of them, women in science who want to be involved in different experiments. When there's a power dynamic, there's the chance for abuse. In the film industry, it's really rife because it's an industry that is so connected with sex, selling sex, selling a certain kind of sex, objectifying women. The medium and the message are often the same. I mean, I think it has its unique problems, but I don't think this is the only place where these things happen. Yeah, this, that mentorship thing is so tough because like these people that we've trusted, right, or that you almost need to get in, end up being the very people that are maybe bring you in, but also bring you in to a situation that you're very uncomfortable with. And sexual harassment is one of those things where it's just as awful to have trusted someone or to be for that 
person to be your advocate, but also for them to be the person who kind of broke you down. In that case, like when your advocate becomes this toxic person or when just anyone in your industry becomes a toxic person, what do you find is the most like painful aspect of that? So like after, after kind of that switch, what do you find for people recovering is the most painful aspect of that um, harassment situation? Well, for a lot of them, they lose the opportunity that they've been working for, and they're kind of starting over. Um, I had one woman talk about, tell me about how she had come here as an aspiring actor, and there was an agent from a powerful agency who said, I'm going to, I'm going to send you out on auditions. And let's have dinner. We can talk about your career. That's not an unusual thing to meet with an agent in a restaurant. I mean, that's absolutely part of the culture here. And in very short time, she figured out that, like I said, there was a quid pro quo that was assumed. I think that at that juncture, she has to choose. Can she handle it? Can she assert boundaries? If she does assert boundaries, will she lose her opportunity? Not only in terms of losing this one contact, but what will this person say about it? What will her reputation be. These are powerful men. I, I think this is a crime that is conducted in secret. And it's usually his word against her word, unless you have someone like, you know, Bill Cosby, or, you know, where, where there's dozens of people who come out. I, I think this happens in, in universities all the time, not, and not just film schools, but any university where you have a, a mentor, you have the person who's the chair of your doctoral committee or your, your thesis or whatever it is that you're trying to do, where there's a power, uneven power dynamics, there's potential for abuse and some of that abuse can be sexual abuse. Definitely see that this sexual abuse comes through like emotional difficulties. So what are the most common ones that you see women uh, complaining about when you are in this group environment? Mostly just a sense that of real despair, that if they want to actualize their dreams of working in this business, that they may have to lose a part of themselves or that they might have to give up a dream that was really centered to their sense of identity and, and, and self because they're not willing to do that. They're being given choices that aren't really choices at all. And often this happens in tremendous isolation. I mean, I know for me, when I was in film school, the professor that really affected me, it was so easy for him to say, oh, what she said is happening. When he gave me an ultimatum, I immediately went to the dean, but he denied it. And she backed him because he was the more powerful player. I think that until Me Too came about with more resources for women who have you know, not only mental health resources, but legal resources as well, that there was a language for this. Um, there was a sense that you could really fight it. I think now there's hope for more optimism. Yes, we have been seeing how these movements can be empowering and just talking about the issue and talking about uh, women talking about their experiences can also be empowering. Mm -hmm. But when they do that, and before doing that, do they have to face the stigmas related to the episode of sexual harassment? Well, speaking for myself, I didn't tell anybody what happened to me at the American Film Institute, which is one of the top film schools in the world, until 25 years later. Because I didn't expect to be believed. I hadn't been believed. I thought I would sound like a whiner. I didn't think that there was anything to be gained. And I watched this professor be promoted. And in fact, after I finally did decide in the aftermath of Me Too to write an article about him and about my experience, in one of the trade papers in the Hollywood 
reporter. I found out he was working in Paris as a film teacher. And I decided to call the school that he worked at and give them my article and say, this is who you've hired. And the dean who I spoke to said, we don't care. We don't have a problem with this in Paris. This is an American phenomenon. So I don't think that everything has changed. I think things are in the process of changing. As someone who now works in the field of mental health, it seemed like a good fit for me to be working on, on those issues. Thank you for sharing a little bit of what you went through. And now that we have identified the stigmas related to sexual harassment, what are some ways that we can get rid of them? Well, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, I think as more women participate in these industries, that in and of itself is tremendously helpful. When there are women who are in positions of authority, and that isn't to say that women are never sexual predators because they can be. I mean, sexual predating, it's about power as much as it's about sexuality, right? So it's not impossible that women are in this role. But I think when there's more women spaces, there's more women that you can go to, that certainly helps. Once something like this has happened, I think every institution has to ask itself, you know, are we being as open and as available to women and men who face this problem as we could be? What is the procedure for reporting? And to what extent is that fair and above board? I, I think that once something like this has happened, once somebody is, has been vic made victim to that kind of abuse, I think the problem is, is that it is a crime that happens in secret and it is a crime that's difficult to prove. So for example, for this agent who was trying to convince young pretty actors, actresses, to, to sort of date him, was using his job as a way of, you know, taking advantage of people who were trying to make a name for themselves, I would have to ask if somebody went above his head and told his, told his boss this is happening, I don't imagine, I mean, it depends on the agency. If there are women in important roles in that agency, there might be more of a chance of someone taking that seriously. It's so on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't know Know what the what the what the solution is. I think the solution, in part, what I've been interested in, is making the issue more public. Doing what you're doing, talking about it, taking some of the stigma off it, so that if it does happen to you, you have a context within which to look at it. It isn't your fault. You're not the only one. You still have to evaluate whether you want to be, whether you want to identify yourself, or whether you want to walk away and find a different opportunity, which is not always easy. Yeah, definitely. And as individuals. How can we remind ourselves that these stigmas are not necessarily true? Well, there's a lot of to read right now that there that wasn't there even a few years ago. There's a lot of firsthand reports. I mean, if you Google Me Too, you've got pages and pages of women who have come forward. In the in the film business in particular, which because I've been working in that area, there's an organization called Women in Film that I've been working with that has gotten women in the entertainment field, um, lawyers who have volunteered, I think, 10 hours of free legal work per victim to counsel women on their on their legal options. They were working with Wright Institute to help counsel women at very low fee or no fee at all in terms of the aftermath, whether they're traumatized or what, help them think about next steps. You know, I think Me Too is a great place to start. They have a lot of resources. They have counselors there. I think the organization, organ, organizing has, has, it's more than begun, it's taking hold, but there's still more work to do. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important just to think about these stigmas and how they affect us. And I think even going back to what you were saying before with uh, kind of just the emotional difficulties that people face after sexual harassment, I think the stigma can really play into that, right? Where like people are stuck with not knowing where to go or even just feeling like it's their fault almost as a result of the societal idea of this. Yeah, this is style the idea of what's okay or what's not okay. And the stigma around that. So what have you found, I guess, in your experience through therapy, what have you found that people do to overcome this feeling of stigma or to overcome this feeling of is their fault or even the despair you mentioned before where they have to start their lives over, right? Because their career is now derailed. Yeah, if only there was an easy answer. The other thing to keep in mind is what you bring, what each person brings to that experience. So for example, there were women in the groups that I led who really only needed to be reassured that this was not their fault. There was one woman in particular, I remember, who after the second meeting said, you know what, I came in here feeling really lousy about myself, and now I'm realizing that these jerks are doing it to everybody, and I'm just going to go find a better mentor. And she was really done. There were other women who came in and said, you know, I have been raped in college, a, a victim, I, I observed domestic violence in my home. And this trauma in the workplace has triggered older, deeper, other unresolved traumas. And they need a lot more help and a lot more work. I guess what I'm saying is it isn't like a one size fits all situation. You bring your strengths and your traumas and your history to what happens to you. And some people can be help with, with just some really fundamental reassurance and being in a group for a few weeks and sort of getting that this is not their fault. Other people have a much more difficult journey because it's part of a larger dynamic of sexual politics and sexual powerlessness. And as a therapist, my job and other therapists' job is to is, is assessment. Each person presents a different and completely unique challenge in terms of how to help and treat this problem. I would say about half the women who came into the group that I, the first group that I was in, went on to get individual therapy because they realized that this was hitting them on, a, on, on multiple levels. Or joined, we have a group at Wyla called Voices of Warriors, group for, for trauma survivors. They wanted, to, they wanted to look deeper at what this evoked. So, I mean, I, I think it really is, it's not only the context of, it, of the particular industry or the particular relationship that was exploited, it's also the woman herself and what she brought to that situation. Someone who had been, who had felt like a victim at home, in the home she grew up in, or in the home she was living in with her partner, is going to experience a sexual predator differently than someone who grew up feeling like she had the right to say no. Yeah, of course, those personal princes are very relevant and it changes the perspective of people that are facing these situations. As victims in general, what servants can they go to for help? I know that you are working on a hotline for women to report harassment and talk about it. Maybe this is just one example. That's a great example. I think if there's, you know, and, and every institution should have one. And the truth is, is that you know, most industries have a human resources department, which is supposedly there for problems that people have in the workplace. The question is, how responsive are they? How open are they? What are they really going to do? Who do they who do they work for? Who do they report to? And certainly in academics, there should be some kind of a there should be a hotline. There should be a there should be a committee. Students and women students should be on that. People who can help to evaluate what's going on and can weed out, you know, habitual sexual predators. All of these tools are useful. 
So I think it's really important, like as you said, going out and reaching reaching out to other groups. Is there any way, even with just the resources we have with friends and families, like are the, can that also be a resource for therapy or is that just a bad idea or what's what's the benefit in bringing in your network that's already there um, when it comes to sexual harassment? I think that's a great first, that's, a, that's sort of the first tier. Friends, family, someone who is in the institution who is a colleague or a supporter. I think that silence is really the enemy and that being able to come forward and to speak about what happens is the beginning of empowerment, wherever that feels safe. So for some people, going to their parents or going to their partner isn't obvious. And for other people, it's, it's not safe at all. I don't think there's a general answer. I think that the, if, if anything, the answer is in what you all are doing, which is raising the issue, keeping it in the public eye, you know, doing some institution building around resources and hoping that you know, social change is slow. Yeah, we definitely see that social change is slow and we can't really depend only on a system change for those events of sexual harassment to stop happening in the workplace. We still have a lot of work to do towards this direction. So when it comes to the individuals that face this, are there any common emotional difficulties that are involved that can be somehow easily identified and people can start working on them? Well, there's a number of different levels at which action can be taken, right? Telling a friend or, or a family member is a beginning. Taking some kind of legal action or administrative action can be very empowering. I think it's important to know that if you're going to jump from talking to your best friend to talking to your lawyer, I think it would be advantageous for many people to speak with a counselor in between because these are not all battles that you're guaranteed to win. And it can be very, very painful. When you're, when you're fighting, and I, I've spoken to many women in the film business about this, when you're fighting someone who has an organization with deep pockets and lawyers on staff, you have to make sure you're ready for the fight. You have to make sure you know what you want to win and how much you're willing to sacrifice for it. Again, these are all very individual determinants. But women in film, when they started, was, were thinking, let's get these women lawyers. And I think it was really productive when they put in, and let's get them therapists to make sure they're ready to deal with the lawyers. Because a lawsuit is an expensive and can be a re-traumatizing experience, and you need to make sure you're ready for that. A lot of people were telling some of our clients, oh, you, you know, you go for it, you know, go after him. But we know now from listening to the very published, often published stories of some of Harvey Weinstein's victims, that wasn't an easy thing to do. And once done, it was often a re-traumatizing experience. Absolutely. And I think that's one of those things where, like, it's so hard. There are so many barriers to going public, right? Even even just before reaching out to a therapist, there's so many barriers because there's stigma around having a therapist and there's stigma around having even experienced sexual harassment. So what are ways to reduce these kind of, like just as people, even bystanders, people who aren't necessarily experiencing sexual harassment, what can we do to create a safe space so it just hurts less to reach out for that help, right? So it's just less of a less of something that's scary and you feel like you're doing it on your own, right? So is there, what are the actions that we can take to create an environment in which fighting for your rights isn't something that tears you apart again? So 
the U.S. military was seeing just a huge number of sexual attacks and rapes among women in the military, both in the field of war and in training here. And they started a program that was actually really good of educating not only the women who might be subject to this, but of educating officers to know what to look for and to teach their the, the men in their command how to be supported bystanders. I think that my understanding is that this program re reduced um, the numbers of sexual attacks. What, they're sen what they were setting out to do was to actually change the culture, to make it clear that that was not okay. I mean, apparently that had to be taught. So I think, I don't know if this is what you're alluding to, but I think there's a big role for men in this for looking at toxic masculinity, for men understanding what it means to take, a, to take a stand, to be supportive, to believe women. Yeah, I think it's so incredibly important, just even because we've talked to a lot of different people on this podcast, even in what training systems have done, right? And often the goal isn't to change the culture. The goal is just to check check the box, right? And so it leads to not changing a culture. It leads to the same problem, even sometimes reactions against the culture because people are like, oh, that's not a big problem, which I think what you said with that, the idea of goal, the goal being to change the culture and make it different, that's super powerful. Yeah. And for our final question, if there is something that you like the audience to take away from this episode, what would it be? I think that this is something we're all responsible for. I think the idea that our culture is, is, is pliable, it's soft. We can make changes. I think to put all of the burden on people who've been victimized to spearhead those changes is unreasonable. People in power positions need to spearhead those changes as well. And particularly in university settings, there should be strong policy in place and, and available that, that every student knows about it before they need it, that says we have a zero tolerance policy for predators on this campus. We will take accusations seriously. I don't think it can just be changed from the people who are victims and survivors. Thank you so much for sharing with us your experience and your time. This was really enlightening. It was a lot of fun. I good luck with all of this. Yeah, thank you. Hey there, it's Gabby again. We are so glad that you joined us today. We really hope that you were able to see some emotional aspects of going through sexual harassment and now feel more equipped to take care of yourself, reach out for support, or even help other people. You can always find more resources at Better Brave's website. And in the next episode, we are going to talk about creating a healthier work environment. So follow us and stay tuned. Also, this is such an important mission to talk about. We would like to reach as many people as we can. So share the word, subscribe, and leave us a review. Thanks. <laughs>